Hi, this is Heather Levitis and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after the podcast for a brief message from our sponsors. And remember to visit www.theresidentreview.com to study along with our outlines. Today, we will be continuing our quick hits series based on rheumatoid hand today. So I'll let Rachel take it away. (laughs) So for pathophysiology, this rheumatoid arthritis is an inflammatory arthritis resulting from a T-cell driven autoimmune process that results in an inflammatory response within the synovium and upregulation of TNF alpha and IL-1. This causes synovial hypertrophy or a panis that erodes cartilage, bone, and soft tissue. And it's also associated with HLA DR4. So interesting. For a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, you need four of the seven morning joint stiffness, soft tissue swelling of three plus joints, symmetrical joint involvement, involvement of MP, PIP, or wrist joints, rheumatoid nodules, seropositive rheumatoid factor, and radiographic findings. Labs. So rheumatoid factor is positive in 70 to 80% of those with rheumatoid arthritis and anti-citrullinated peptide antibody has a high specificity for RA. All right, Heather, why don't you take us through medical management and imaging? So this is generally managed by rheumatologists, thankfully not us. The treatment aims are for the containment of chronic inflammation, as well as structural protection for the joints. And there's three general classes of medications that are given to these patients. The first is NSAIDs, which reduces acute inflammation and relieves pain. There, you can use corticosteroids and you can use DMARDs, disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. They're used after a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis has been made, and this helps reduce structural damage early on. Other things you can try include splinting, and then you really only want to do surgery if you have failure of these non-surgical modalities for about six to 12 months, and then the patient continues to have functional limitations or pain. You should stop TNF inhibitors one month prior to any planned surgical intervention, and MTX and other meds can continue. There's no real benefit in stopping. So I'll go through some imaging quickly. Generally, you see joint space narrowing marginal erosions, and then you have kind of characteristic deformities, which include the ulnar translocation of the carpus, ulnar deviation at the MP joints, and then kind of the order of procedures kind of goes from proximal to distal. You start with really an elbow arthroplasty, you move on to the wrist. A lot of times these patients see an arthrodesis and then MP joint arthroplasties. And then I'll let Rachel talk about kind of the presenting hand deformities. All right. So like Heather said, it's really, and you'll see this on a test question quite often, a patient will present with multiple deformities and multiple complaints, and you never want to reconstruct anything distally before you address the proximal problems. So a lot of times patients will have MCP joint destruction or even ulnar drift, but you need to address the wrist first, particularly if they have pancarpal arthritis or caput ulna, which we'll talk about in a second. So starting at the wrist, this is the most commonly affected joint in rheumatoid arthritis. The synovitis of the wrist joint weakens the ligamentous support of the DRUJ and causes collapse of the radial column of the carpals. This results in palmar and ulnar carpal subluxation, supination of the carpus, and a prominent distal ulna, like I said, which is called caput ulna. And this can lead to extensor tendon rupture, which we'll talk about. You also have radial deviation of the metacarpals and ulnar deviation of the distal fingers, which results in relative lengthening of the distal ulna compared to the distal radius. That's a lot. 
Cap it ulna. We need to know this. The ulnar head will dislocate dorsally, and this results in DRUJ incongruity and impaction of the distal ulna on the carpus. There are several procedures used to correct this. The first one is the DARA. And the DARE procedure was first described in 1912 and involves resection of the distal ulna. This provides pain relief from the DRUJ and relieves distal ulnar impingement on the carpus. The main concern of the DARE procedure is for continued ulnar translocation of the carpus in patients with weak ligamentous support. The Save Kapanji, this fuses the DRUJ in combination with a proximal ulnar ostectomy to provide rotary function. And this preserved ulnar head gives support to the carpus and prevents ulnar translocation. And then finally, for pancarpal arthritis, this can be corrected with wrist arthrodesis or arthroplasty. And I'll just say the arthroplasty is rather rare. So that's probably not going to be your answer choice. If bilateral wrists are involved, it's recommended for arthroplasty of the dominant wrist and arthrodesis of the non-dominant wrist and neutral to 15 degrees of extension. And remember problems with arthroplasty is problems with any kind of hardware, like loosening implant fracture, periprosthetic bone problems, et cetera. All right, Heather, why don't you talk to us a little bit about MCP joint deformities? Okay. So the typical deformity you'll see in rheumatoid arthritis results in volar subluxation of the proximal phalanges and ulnar deviation of the fingers distal to the MCP joint. The pathophysiology of this is chronic synovitis at the MCP disrupts the ligamentous support and radial stress of the fingers with pinch drives the fingers in the ulnar direction. The patients also have the inability to extend the fingers, leading to limitation of fine pinch and ability to cup the fingers. Most distressing to these patients is actually the aesthetic appearance of the deformity. Treatment includes arthrodesis versus arthroplasty again. Arthrodesis is rarely performed because of the arc of motion of the fingers is initiated at the MCP joint. So for MCP arthroplasty, you usually use a silicone arthroplasty combined with shortening to relax tension and improve positioning of the fingers. The silicone is preferred due to ease of placement and relative accessibility. It does not change the range of motion of the fingers. And then transfer of the interosseous muscle is also performed for correction of ulnar drift in rheumatoid arthritis. So I'll have Rachel talk a little bit about tendon rupture. All right. Thanks, Heather. And just remember that we get tested a lot on MCP arthroplasty and we often get tested on what it improves. It improves pain, like Heather said, but not range of motion. And so you really need to keep that in mind. All right. So tendon rupture is very commonly tested and there's two reasons, either abrasion of the tendon over surfaces or weakening of the tendon by synovial invasion. So we can see lots of tendon problems. I'll talk about tendon rupture and we'll mention trigger finger at the end, but you can have trigger finger due to focal tenosynovitis or rheumatoid nodule within the sheath. FPL rupture is the most common flexor tendon rupture, and it's secondary to wear against the volar scaphoid osteophyte called a Mannerfeld lesion. And then extensor tendon ruptures are by and large the most common tendon ruptures in rheumatoid arthritis, and it's due to extensor tenosynovitis or attrition over sharp edges caused by the DRUJ and radiocarpal arthritis, as well as the caput ulna, which we talked about. Small fingers typically first, followed by the ring long and index. And if you have all of those, that's called von Jackson syndrome. Like I said, the small finger EDC is the most commonly ruptured tendon, and it commonly crosses the head of the ulna. So we've been tested on that. It's not the EDM, but the EDC, the small finger that is most commonly ruptured and definitive operative management includes a DARA and excision of synovial tissue over the extensor tendon and then a tendon transfer. So don't forget your DARA and your answer choice. Extensor tendon reconstruction follows the principles of tendon transfer. So small finger distal end can be transferred into side into the intact ring EDC if it's intact. When the ring and small finger are ruptured, you can use EIP to power the ring and small. 
When the long ring and small finger are ruptured, you can use EIP to power the ring and small and the long EDC can be end aside on the index. So you're just kind of moving things around a little bit. Another strategy includes transfer of the FDS from the longer the ring to power the extensors while the EIPs can be transferred to power the remaining extensor, like the long finger. If all four tendons are ruptured, it, options include FDS from the long and ring to power the index middle and ring and little. And then remember for an EPL rupture, you want to use EIP. So EIP to EPL. Other reasons for inability to extend the MCP, which you need to keep in the back of your mind, it's not always a tendon rupture, includes extensor subluxation at the MCP joints. And the way you can differentiate this is if the patient can hold their fingers in extension when they're placed in extension. So they may not be able to initiate extension, but they can hold extension. And that's usually due to um, like a sagittal band rupture or extensor subluxation. And you can treat that with centralizing the extensor tendon. MCP joint dislocation is commonly one of the reasons too, although we're not tested on that. And then remember PI and palsy, and we'll talk about that in a second. All right, Heather, why don't you take us through finger deformities like boutonniere and swan neck? All right. So a boutonniere deformity is characterized by PIP flexion with DIP hyperextension. The pathology originates at the PIP joint. The patients present mainly with an aesthetic concern, especially rheumatoid patients. It typically starts as an elongation of the central slip from synovitis, which is the primary pathology in rheumatoid. The lateral bands then sublux below the axis of rotation, so they sublux volarly, resulting in shortening of the retinacular ligaments, which causes flexion of the PIP and extension of the DIP from the tightening of the displaced lateral bands. There are two different deformities, um, flexible or fixed. For flexible deformities, you can use soft tissue reconstruction, including joint synovectomy, tightening of the stretch central tendon, and dorsal fixation of the lateral bands. For fixed deformities or evidence of articular destruction, this requires arthrodesis or arthroplasty. Arthrodesis is typically favored in boutonniere deformities, given the, that arthroplasty requires excision and removal of the collateral ligaments, which destabilizes the joint. So for swan neck deformities, swan neck is a PIP hyperextension with a DIP flexion. These patients report problems making a fist. You see at the DIP erosion of the terminal tendon, so you get sort of a mallet type finger. And then at the PIP, a stretching of the volar plate, you can have rupture of the FDS insertion, which causes PIP hyperextension. And then at the level of the MCP, you get subluxation of the joint and ex the extensor tendon mechanism, which can result in ulnar intrinsic tendon tightness. So you have different types of, I guess, swan neck deformities. Yeah. I'm looking at Rachel because she's the expert on this, not me. <laughs> um, type one, you have a flexible PIP joint deformity, regardless of the MCP joint position. Type two is limited PIP joint flexion with the MCP extended because of intrinsic tightness. Type three, you have limited PIP joint flexion in all MCP joint positions because of a fixed dorsal position of the lateral bands. And then in type four, you have PIP joint destruction. So next we'll go through some management and the management of these pathologies depends really on the extent of the PIP joint deformity. Type one swan neck deformities generally respond to figure of eight splinting. A DIP arthrodesis can be considered for swan neck deformity resulting from a mallet. Type two swan neck deformities may be managed by a figure of eight splint or by an intrinsic release if the intrinsics are tight without MCP joints subluxation or degeneration. Wow. Type three swan neck deformities are treated with translocation of the lateral bands. 
PIP joint capsulectomy and collateral ligament release, and then type four swan neck deformities are treated with PIP joint arthrodesis or PIP joint silicone arthroplasty. So I'll let Rachel talk about thumb because that was a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Heather. And surprisingly, because this is even hard for me, sometimes we haven't tested on this in the setting of rheumatoid arthritis. Particularly, we were tested on a patient that did not have intrinsic tightness, but had tightness of all positions because of dorsal position of the lateral bands. And that's a type three. So remember type three is PIP joint capsulectomy and collateral ligament release, as well as translocation of the lateral bands. So intrinsic tightness is only going to be with the MCPs extended. The patients will not be able to flex their PIPs. Um, and extrinsic tightness is the opposite. So if they just have intrinsic tightness only, you can do an intrinsic release. All right. Talking about thumb deformities, which were tested on a lot, actually the most common deformity is a boutonniere. So that's the MCP is flexed and the IP is extended. And the more rare one is the swan neck deformity for boutonniere deformity. You can do an MCP fusion. So remember that the pathology for this originates from synovitis at the MCP joint. So the EPL will subluxate ulnarly and volarly and cause a flexion of the MCP joint and IP extension, a swan neck. So remember for that, you can do a CMC arthroplasty or arthrodesis. And a hyperextension of the MCP can affect thumb basal joint and inhibit reconstructive efforts. So you need to address if that's greater than 30 degrees, which we'll talk about in our wrist talk. And then finally for some miscellaneous surgical management. So flexor tendon rupture treatment of this, you want to remove the osteophyte at the level of the scaphoid, perform a flexor, tenus, and evectomy, and then you can do an index FDS transfer into the FPL or a tendon graft into the FPL like palmaris, which we've been tested on. Um, the EIP to FPL is not an option as that's usually reserved for extensor tendon injuries. And then you can also perform an arthrodesis of the thumb IP. Um, remember for trigger finger, you don't want to perform an A1 pulley release. You want to do a tenus and evectomy and remove the rheumatoid nodules. You can also remove a, a slip of the FDF, FDS if they're still triggering despite that. And then for a carpal tunnel release, you want to do an extensive exposure, release of the carpal tunnel and flexor tenus and evectomy along with that. Remember that rheumatoid nodules in general do not need to be resected unless they're symptomatic and a PIN palsy, which can be tricked for an extensor tendon rupture. This is due to inflammation and synovitis at the elbow and patients will lack active extension, but still tenodes. You need to think about when you have a patient that can't extend their fingers, remember extension from rupture of the sagittal bands, um, extensor tendon rupture, but extensor tendon rupture will lack tenodesis. Right. And then for treatment of PIN palsy or PIN compression, you want to release the radial tunnel. And then just of note, you still can perform a trapeziectomy in those with CMC arthritis. All right. And then just to end, we have a few atypical arthritis, which sometimes we're tested on. Okay. So the first one we'll talk about is psoriatic arthritis. Um, this is characterized by plaques on the extensor surfaces. Um, these patients have dactylitis or sausage fingers. They have PIP flexion contractures. Their MCPs are stiff and hyperextended. And then they have arthritis mutilins. So patients also have kind of a pencil and cup deformity on, uh, at the DIP. There's a rapid onset of psoriatic arthritis. Um, it's associated with Ryder syndrome, and these are characterized by um, HLA B27. It will present as acute swelling of the digits, and then the DIP has arthritis. The patients can also have conjunctivitis and uveitis of the eye, um, and it can coexist with an HIV infection. The surgical management is similar to rheumatoid arthritis. Um, then patients with systemic lupus are ANA positive. They have symmetric hand edema. They usually have a malar rash. They can have pleuritis among other things. 
Their joint spaces are generally preserved, but in lupus, there's a subluxation of joints. Usually they have a swan neck deformity and then surgical treatment after splinting has failed or the use of silver ring splints has failed. You just kind of want to do limited fusions as, as you can prevent. And then the next one we'll talk about is scleroderma. Well, the limited version is limited to the skin and joints. And then the diffuse version is cutaneous as well and can involve the internal organs. And these patients have positive ANA, generally occurs in women. It's associated with Crest syndrome, which is limited cutaneous calcinosis, Raynaud's, um, you can have esophageal pathology. These patients have shiny skin until injectasias, and you'll see a positive anti-SEL70. So if you have, okay, you can use Integra in patients with scleroderma for patients with exposed joints. You can have, you can use Integra when local flaps can't be used because of the disease kind of shiny tissue. And then PIP arthrodesis is used for flexion contractures of the PIP joints. So next we'll talk about gout, which is the great mimicker of everything. You see a deposition of crystals via monoarticular deposition, um, generally at the DIP the radiocarpal joint. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. And it mimics septic arthritis. You'll see periarticular erosions or punched out lesions. Sometimes it can affect abnormal joints and aspiration of the joints shows negatively birefringent crystals. Positively birefringent crystals is CPPD. And then in gout, you'll see monosodium urate crystals, which are needle shaped. It can invade the scaphalunate or lunotricretal joint um, and result in slack wrist. You can have pseudo gout at the TFCC. Acute management includes NSAIDs and colchicine. Um, chronic management, chronic management, you want to use medications like allopurinol. Okay, other things we've been tested on include sarcoidosis, which is characterized by non caseating granulomas. You can have bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy, and you want to treat this with steroids. And then in Lyme disease, you can have mid to late migrating arthralgias and polyneuralgias, and you treat this with doxycycline. All right. Thanks Heather for all that great stuff. So I know the in-service is nearing very soon. I hope you enjoyed this and stay tuned for our next lecture. Thank you. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.